Chapter One of the Annals of Anne by Kate Trimble Sharber. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by C.J. Plogue. The Annals of Anne by Kate Trimble Sharber. Chapter One. My cousin Eunice is a grown young lady, and she keeps a diary, which put the notion in my head of keeping one too. There are two kinds of people that keep diaries, married ones and single ones. The single ones fill theirs full of poetry. The married ones tell how much it costs to keep house. Not being extra good in grammar and spelling, I thought I'd copy a few pages out of Cousin Eunice's diary this morning as a pattern to keep mine by, but I was disappointed. Nearly every page I turned to in hers was filled full of poetry, which stuff never did make good sense to me. Besides the trouble it puts you to by having to start every line with a fresh capital. Cousin Eunice says nearly all famous people keep a diary for folks to read after they're dead. I always did admire famous people, especially Lord Byron and Columbus. And I've often thought I should like to be a famous person myself when I get grown. I don't care so much about graduating in white mull trimmed in lace as some girls do. For the really famous never graduate. They get expelled from college for writing little books saying there ain't any devil. But I should love to be a beautiful opera singer with a jasmine flower at my throat and a fresh duke standing at the side of the door of the theater every night begging me to marry him. Or I'd like to rescue a ship full of drowning people, then swim back to shore and calmly squeeze the salt water out of my bathing suit so the papers would all be full of it the next morning. Things don't turn out the way you expect them to, though and I needn't count too much on these things. I might catch cold in my voice or cramps in the sea and never get famous, but I'm going to keep this diary anyhow and just hand it down to my grandchildren, for nearly every lady can count on them, whether she's famous or infamous. Maybe some rainy day, a hundred years from now, a little girl will find this book in the attic, all covered with dust, and will sit down and read it, while the rain sounds soft and pattery on the outside, and her mother calls and calls without getting an answer. This is not at all the right way to do, but what can they expect of you when your attic is such a very delicious place? Ours is high enough not to bump your head, even if you're as tall as my friend Rufy Claiborne, and where a part of the window pane is broken out, an apple tree sends in a perky little branch. Just before Easter every year I spend nearly all my time up here at this window, for the apple blossoms seem to have so many things to say to me lovely things that i can feel but i cannot hear and if i could write them down this would be the most beautiful book in the world and great sheets of rain come sometimes you can see them coming from the hills back of mr claiborne's house but the apple blossoms don't mind the wedding when i wrote mr claiborne just then it reminded me of cousin eunice's diary that was one sensible word which was on every page Sometimes it was mixed up close along with the poetry, but I always knew who she meant, for he is my best friend and the grandest young man I've ever seen out of a book. His other name is Rufy, and he's an editor when he's in the city. But before he got to be an editor, he was born across the creek from our farm, and we've always been good friends. His father and mine were also friends, always quarreling about whose bird dogs and hotbeds are the best and our mothers talk a heap about the original sin and chow-chow pickle. 
maybe my grandchildren would like to know a few little things about me at the time i started keeping this diary for their sakes so i'll stop now and tell them as quickly as i can for i never did think just my own self was so interesting if they have any imagination they can tell pretty well what kind of a person i was anyhow from the grand portrait i'm going to have painted for them in the gown i wear when i'm presented at court well i was born in the year hmm, but if i tell you that you will know exactly how old i am that is if you can count things better than i can anyhow when i read a thing i'd rather they didn't tell just how old the heroine is then you can have her any age you like best maybe if i were to tell you exactly how many birthdays i've had you would always be saying like mother and mammy lou you're a mighty big girl to be doing such silly things or like rufy says sometimes and you're entirely too young to be interested in such subjects as that so you will have to be satisfied when i tell you that i am at the gawky age and a person is never surprised at anything that a girl at the gawky age does i'm little enough still to love puppies and big enough to love washington irving you might think these things don't mix well but they do on rainy mornings i like to take a puppy under one arm and the alhambra under the other with eight or ten apples in my lap and climb up in the loft to enjoy the greatest pleasure of my life i sling the alhambra up on the hay first then ease the puppy up and take the hem of my skirt between my teeth so the apples won't spill out while i go up after them but i never even look at hay when there's a pile of cotton seed to wallow in as to my ways i'm sorry to say that i'm what mother calls a peculiar child mammy says i'm the curious mystery she's ever seen that's because i ask why very often and then lots of times don't exactly believe that things are that way when they're told to me one day at sunday school when i was about four the teacher was telling about jonah mother often told me tales some that i called make-believe and others that i called so tales when the teacher got through i spoke up and asked her if that was a so tale she said yes it was but i horrified every other child in the class by speaking up again and saying well me don't believe it old as i am now i don't see how jonah's constitution could have stood it but i've got sense enough to believe many a thing that i can't see nor smell nor feel an old man out in the mountains that never had been anywhere might say he didn't believe in electricity but that wouldn't keep your electric light bill from being more than you thought it ought to be at the end of the month speaking of bills reminds me of father father is not a rich man but his folks used to be before the war that's the way with so many people around here they have more ancestry than anything else still we have perfectly lovely smelling old leather books in our library and when cotton goes high we go up to the city and take a suite of rooms with a bath i am telling you all this my grandchildren to let you know that you have blue blood in your veins but you mustn't let yours get too blue father says it takes a dash of red blood mixed with blue like turpentine with paint to make it go still i hope the old place will be just as beautiful when my grandchildren get old enough to appreciate it as it is now and not be sold and turned into a sanitarium or a girls school the walls of the house are a soft grayish white like a dear old grandmother's hair and the microvella roses in the far corner of the yard put such notions into your head 
there are rows of cedar trees down the walk planted before andrew jackson's time and at night there are the stars i love stars especially venus but there are a lot of others that i don't know the names of inside the house is cool and shady and you can always find a place to lie down and read cousin eunice says so many people spoil their houses by selecting carpets and wallpaper that look like they want to fight but ours is not like that some corners in our library look like ladies own journal pictures cousin eunice doesn't belong to our house but i wish she did for she's as beautiful as a magazine cover and i think we have the nicest home in the world besides being old and big and far back in the yard there's always the smell of apples upstairs and i'm sure mother is the nicest lady in the world she wants everybody to have a good time and no matter whether you're a man a young lady or a little girl she lets you scatter your pipes love letters and doll rags from the front gate to the backest chicken coop without ever fussing mother admires company greatly she doesn't have to perspire over them herself though for she has mammy lou to do all the cooking and dilsey to make up the beds so she invited cousin eunice to spend the summer with us and asked bertha a cousin on the other side to come at the same time for she said girls love to be together we soon found out though that some girls do and some girls don't cousin eunice said that i might always express my frank opinion of people and things in my diary so i take pleasure in starting in on bertha bertha she is a cat even rufie called her one the night she got here not a straight-out cat exactly but he called her a kitten you see when bertha was down here on a little visit last year she and rufie had up a kind of summer engagement a summer engagement is where the girl wears the man's fraternity pin instead of a ring and when she came again this time it didn't take them two hours to get summer engaged again it being moonlight on the front porch and bertha looking real soft and purry then the very next week cousin eunice came and poor rufie we all felt so sorry for him for from the first minute he looked at her he was in love and it's a terrible thing to be in love and engaged at the same time when one is with one girl and the other to another and it was so plain that the eyes of the potatoes could see it but bertha hadn't an idea of giving up anybody as good-looking as rufie to another somebody as good-looking as cousin eunice which mother said was a shame and she never did such a thing when she was a girl but mammy lou said it was no more than rufie deserved for not being more careful but anyway cousin eunice and bertha hadn't been together two days before they hated each other so they wouldn't use the same powder rag they just couldn't bear the sight of each other because they could both bear the sight of rufie so well this was a disappointment to me for i had hoped that they would go into each other's rooms at night and brush their hair half undressed and have as good a time as the pictures of ladies in underwear catalogues always seem to be having but they are not at all friendly they have never even asked each other what make of corsets they wear nor who operated on them for appendicitis bertha talks a great deal about rufie and how devoted he was to her last summer but cousin eunice won't talk at all when bertha's around she sits still and looks dumb and superior as a trained nurse does when you're trying to find out what it is that the patient has got cousin eunice has a right to act superior though for while other girls are spending their time embroidering chafing-dish aprons 
she is studying books written by a man with a name like a sneeze let me get one of the books to see how it is spelled n i e t z s c h e there i got it down at last and cousin eunice doesn't have just a plain parlor at home to receive her bow in she has a studio a studio is a room full of things that catch dust and the desire of her life is to write a little brown-backed book that people will fill full of pencil marks and always carry around with them in their suitcases she doesn't neglect her outside looks though just because her mind is so full of great thoughts no indeed her fountain pen jostles against her looking-glass in her handbag and her notebook gets dusted over with pink powder now bertha is entirely different no matter how the sun is shining outside she spends all her mornings up in her room shining her fingernails and she wears pounds and pounds of hair on the back of her head father says the less a girl has on the inside the more she will stick on the outside of her head and lots of men can't tell the difference bertha certainly isn't at a loss for lovers she gets a great many letters from a commercial traveler a commercial traveler is a man who writes to his girl on different hotel paper every day these letters are a great comfort to her spirit when rufy acts so loving around cousin eunice and she always has one sticking in her belt when rufy is nearby with the name of the hotel showing every night just before or just after supper i always go out to the kitchen and tell mammy lou all the news i've seen or heard that day she laughs when i tell her about how bertha is trying to hold on to rufy tain't a speck o' use she said tonight so emphatically that i was afraid the omelette would fall why a camel can dance a virginie reel in the eye of a needle quicker than a gal can sick a man back to lovin' her after he's done took a notion to change the picture he wears in his watch mammy told the truth i'm sure for bertha has worn all her prettiest dresses and done her hair two new ways trying to get him back but he is still coldly polite which i think is the meanest way on earth to treat a person not that bertha doesn't deserve it for she knew they were just joking about that summer engagement but she still wears the fraternity pen which of course causes cousin eunice to be coldly polite to rufy and altogether we don't really need a refrigerator in the house this summer mammy lou and i had been trying to think up a plan to thaw out the atmosphere but this morning a way was provided and i greatly enjoyed being an humble instrument as brother sheffield says everything was draggy this morning bertha was down in the parlor singing popular songs very loud as i came down the steps with my diary in hand i despise popular songs as i went past the kitchen door on my way to the big pear tree which i meant to climb and write in my book i saw that mammy lou was having the time of her life telling cousin eunice all about when rufy was a baby she had called her in there to get some fresh buttermilk and cousin eunice was drinking glass after glass of it with such a rapt look on her face i knew she didn't realize that she couldn't get on her tight clothes till mid-afternoon of course he's an extra fine young man mammy said dipping for another glassful there was nary finer baby and wasn't i right there when mr rufy was born sure enough cousin eunice said looking entranced this wasn't much more entertaining to me than bertha's singing for i had heard it all so many times before so i went out to the pear tree and climbed up 
but I couldn't think of even one word that would be of interest to my grandchildren. So I just wrote my name over and over again on the fly pages. I wonder what makes them call them fly pages. Then I closed my book and climbed down again. I started back to the house by the sideway and met Rufy coming up the walk toward the front door. Hello, Rufy, I said, running to meet him and walking with him to the front steps. I'm so glad to see you. Everything is so draggy this morning. Won't you sit on the steps and talk to me a while? Or are you in a hurry? I'm always in a hurry when I'm going to your house, he answered with a look in the direction of Cousin Eunice's window. And my visits always seem as short as a wedding journey when the bridegroom's salary is small. He dusted off the step, though, and sat down. And I told him that Cousin Eunice was drinking buttermilk in her kimono and wouldn't be in a mood to dress for another hour. Then I told him what a hard time I'd had trying to think up something interesting to write in my diary. He said, looking again toward Cousin Eunice's window, that there was only one thing in the world to write about. But he supposed I was too young to know anything about that. I spoke up promptly and told him a girl never got too young to know about love. Love, he said, trying to look surprised. Who mentioned love? Just then, I heard the flutteration of a silk petticoat on the porch behind the vines, but Rufy was gazing so hard at the blue hills on the far side of town that he didn't hear it. So without saying anything to him, I leaned over far enough to look under the banisters and saw the bottom of Bertha's skirt and a skein of blue silk thread lying on the floor. So I knew she was sitting there working on that everlasting chafing dish apron. Then Satan put an idea into my head. I think it was Satan. Rufy, I said, talking very loud and quick so Bertha would just have to hear me. What's the difference between a kitten and a cat? Rufy at last got his eyes unfixed from the blue hills and just stared at me foolishly for a second. Am I the parent of a child that I should have to answer fool questions? He said. But the night she came, you called Bertha a kitten, I reminded him. And he looked worse surprised. And since I've heard her called a cat, how long does it take a kitten to grow into a cat? Oh, I see. Well, I'm better versed in feline ways now than I was that night, so I might state that sometimes you discover that a kitten is a cat. There isn't any difference. We heard a clattering noise behind the vines just then, which I knew was Bertha dropping her embroidery scissors. Rufy jumped for he had no idea anybody was hearing our conversation, and I know he wouldn't have said what he did about cats except he thought. I was too little to understand such figures of speech. Then he got up to go in and see who it was, and I decided to disappear around the corner of the house. I didn't altogether disappear before I heard her say indeed he had meant to call her a cat, and he said indeed he hadn't, but she hadn't been square with him and they talked and talked until I got uneasy that Cousin Eunice would be coming through the hall and hear them. So I hurried on back to head her off, but Satan, or whoever it was, put me up to a good job in that. For the next time I saw Rufy, he was wearing his fraternity pin and a happy smile, and Bertha had red spots on her face even as late as dinner time, like consumption that lovely heroines die of. I've been too disappointed lately to write in my diary. Somehow I think like Rufy that there's only one thing worth writing about 
and there's been very little in that line going on around here lately. Poor Rufy is having a harder time now than he had when Bertha was on his hands, for Cousin Eunice has taken it into her head to show him that she doesn't have to accept him the minute he gets untangled from a summer flirtation. Those were her very words. She and I go for long walks with him every morning down through the ravine, and they read poetry that sounds so good you feel like somebody's scratching your back. And she wears her best-fitting shirtwaists. One good thing about Cousin Eunice is that her clothes never look like she'd sat up all night the night before to make them. And when she's expecting him at night, her eyes shine like they had been greased. And I can tell from the way she breathes quick when she hears the gate open that she loves him. Yes, she adores the sound of his rubber heels on the front porch, but she won't give in to him. She's punishing him for the Bertha part of it. Mother says she's very foolish, for men will be men, especially on nights in June. But Mammy Lou says she's exactly right, and I reckon Mammy knows best, for she's been married a heap more times than Mother ever has. The longer you keep a man feeling like he's on the red-hot stove, the better he loves you. Mammy Lou told Cousin Eunice tonight, as she was powdering her face for the last time before going downstairs and trying to keep us from seeing that she was listening for a footstep on the gravel walk. And a husband's got to be treated just like a lover. A good heavy poker's a fine thing to make a husband know his place. And lauk, a lazy husband's like a greasy churn. You have to give him a thorough scaldin to do any good. This morning at the breakfast table, after father had helped the plates to chicken, saving two gizzards for me, he said, Times have changed since I was a young man. As this wasn't exactly the first time we had heard such a remark, none of us paid any attention to it until we saw mother trying to make him hush. Then we knew he must be starting to say something funny about cousin Eunice and Rufy, for mother always stops him on this subject whenever she can, because she doesn't want Bertha's feelings hurt. But Bertha never seems to mind. She's decided to marry the commercial traveler. I'm almost sure, although her people say he's not steady. Steady means staying still, so who ever heard of a traveling man who was steady? Times have changed, especially about courting, father kept on, pretending that he didn't see mother shaking her head at him. When father gets that twinkle in his eye, he can't see anything else. Now in my young days, when a girl and a fellow looked good to each other, they usually got engaged at once. But now, jumping Jerusalem, no matter how deeply in love they are, they waste days and days trying to get a complete understanding of each other's nature. They talk about their opinion of everything under the sun, from woman's suffrage to Belshazzar's feast. Lord Byron wrote a piece in the Fifth Reader about Belshazzar's feast. I started to remark, but I remembered in time to hush, for I've never been able to mention Lord Byron's name to my family in any piece since they've found that I keep a vase of flowers in front of his picture all the time. They call him my beau, the beautiful creature. Father didn't notice my remark, however. He was too busy with his own, and instead of exchanging locks of hair as they used to when Mary and I were young, they give each other limp-backed books that have helped to shape their career and beg that they will mark the passages that impress them. Uncle Dan, you've been eavesdropping, Cousin Eunice said, looking up from her hot biscuit and honey long enough to smile at him. But she didn't quit eating. It has got out of style to stop eating when you're in love, for a man admires a healthy-looking girl. 
I know a young man who had been going to see a girl for a long time and never did propose. She was a pretty girl, too, slender and wild rosy looking. Well, she took a trip to Germany one summer and drank so much of something fattening over there that the wild rose look changed to American beauty. And when she came home in the fall, the young man was so delighted with her looks that he turned in and married her before Christmas. Cousin Eunice knows these people, too, and she does all she can to keep her digestion good, even to fresh milk and raw eggs. I hope I can get married without the raw eggs part of it. And she tramps all over the woods for the sake of her appetite in stylish-looking tan boots. As we left the dining room, I noticed that she had on her walking boots and a short skirt, so I thought Rufy would be along pretty soon for us to go down to the ravine and read poetry. They always take me along because I soon get enough of the poetry and go off to wade in the branch, leaving them to their favorite big gray rock. Sure enough, Rufy wasn't long about coming, and I saw that his limp-backed book was labeled Keats this morning. Cousin Eunice didn't have a book. She carried a parasol. A parasol is used to jab holes in the sand when you're being made love to. I don't know why I should have felt so, but just as soon as they got started to reading this morning, I had a curious feeling, like you have when the lights burn low on the stage and the orchestra begins the flower song. The way they looked at each other made under my scalp tingle. Now, if I ever have a granddaughter that doesn't have this feeling in the presence of great things, I shall disinherit her and leave my diamonds to a society for tuberculosis or pure food or fresh air or some of those charitable things. Before long, they branched off from Keats to Shelley, and Rufy didn't need a book with him. Just after he finished a little verse beginning, I cannot give what men call love. I had sense enough to get up and go away from them. Although I have always been crazy to see a proposal, there was something in the atmosphere around that old gray rock that made me feel as if I were treading on sacred ground. I hate to use expressions like this that everybody else uses, but I can't think of anything else, and it's getting too late to sit here by myself and try. Anyhow, it's the feeling you have when you go into a cathedral with stained-glass windows. So I went away from them, but not very far away. Just a little distance to where I have a lovely pile of moss collected on the north side of a big tree. And the smotheration around my heart kept up. It seemed to me the longest time before anything happened, for Cousin Eunice was jabbing holes in the sand with her parasol, like she was being paid to do it by the hour. Finally, without any ado, he put his hands on hers and made her stop. Sweetheart, I heard him say so low that I could hardly hear, for the flower song was buzzing through my head so loud. Then he seemed to remember me, for he looked around, and seeing that I was clear gone, he said it again. Sweetheart. She looked up at him when he said it, and looked, and looked. Maybe she never had realized before just how big and broad-shouldered and brown-eyed Rufy really is. Neither of them said anything, but he put both arms around her, and when I saw that they were going to kiss, I shut my eyes right tight and stopped up my ears and buried my face in the pile of moss. Even then, I never felt so much like a yellow dog in my life. End of chapter 1